It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it. This is the final word story time, the version of the final word cricket podcast where we look back at the history of the game in a week in which we learned that uh, Wally Hammond should be grateful that he was not alive during an era when camera phones existed, uh, although he probably would have liked to have been alive in an era when antibiotics existed. We are recording this show transatlantically 
Uh, I'm Jeff Lemon and I'm recording it not with Adam Collins because he is extremely jet lagged and has been dealing with a small child who, as I understand it, uh, her head is rotating around repeatedly while spewing out green bile and invoking the name of Satan. Instead, I'm recording today with Daniel Norcross, who is coming to us from a delightfully sunny and warm <laughs> London. I'm sure. I'm sure. But in your usual way of tracking the six months of winter via the six years of World War II, where are we up to? Oh, well, Operation Barbarossa was yesterday. That's mm-hmm. the German invasion of Russia. It took place at around about eight o'clock in the morning yesterday, followed uh, mm. swiftly by the invasion of Vilnius. The Finns have joined forces with the Germans, uh, yes, with the Germans to attack the Soviet Union. All hell is breaking loose on the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. The Brits are getting a little bit of time off. I mean, there's some nasty stuff happening in North Africa. But with German eyes moving towards the East, uh, the English are getting an opportunity to regroup after the horrors of uh, Bonfire Night and Diwali, otherwise known as the Blitz. So uh, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's pretty bleak. And, and yep. in keeping with Operation Barbarossa, uh, we've just had a storm forecast for today. Storm Arwen, which is going to bring some broken twigs in Scotland, which is a real mm-hmm. source of great concern. And uh, <laughs> potentially the odd overturned bicycle. Wow. Um, I think Operation Barbarossa is one of those things you can file under. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, (laughs) Perhaps perhaps in the fullness of time, it it did not um, end up the the way that its instigators uh, had, had hoped or predicted. But, you know, you live and learn, or in many cases, you don't. Yeah, I think I think, I think quite a lot yeah. of the, the architects of Operation Barbarossa, uh, yeah, did actually not live and yeah, learn. yeah. They probably learned. Uh, they were probably fairly acutely aware of the um, uh, the the flaws in the plan um, by the time it reached its, Achtung, its logical end Russia point, is huge which... and very, very cold in winter. <laughs> we forgot about that. Yeah. Yes, we Supply forgot about lines. bringing yeah. the, the appropriate equipment. Uh, oh, it's very cold, as Eddie Hizzard said. Very cold, very cold. I've got a better idea. No, it's the same idea. Right. So that's a different kind of history. I think World War II might get a mention in a cricket-related context today as well. Ooh. I feel that looking forward at the notes. But I don't know what Daniel's doing. He doesn't know what I'm doing. This is the beauty of this show. We've, we've prepared our answers in isolation from one another as per the pandemic themes of the time. And we're going to surprise each other, uh, enlighten each other and delight each other, hopefully. I, I, will, I don't know where the cockles of the heart are, but I will try to warm them for you, Daniel, via oh. the means of, of cricket podcasting. Well, I, I need uh, my cockles warming, I can tell you, because it is mm. quite brisk and uh, mm. all the leaves are brown and the sky is grey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, no, I want to watch... What's, what's the name of that Wong Kar Wai film where it just uses that song over and over again? It's a, it's a motif. It's a good piece of Hong Kong cinema. Anyway, let's plough in to the show ahead of it. Oh, I should mention before we do that, Final Word live shows coming up over the summer. They're in Melbourne, Adelaide and hopefully Sydney. Um, we're still working on that one. But Melbourne is locked in for the 13th of December. Adelaide for the 14th. Tickets, uh, the link is in the show notes. And if you join the Patreon, you can get discount tickets. Right, let's get into the show. This is how we do it. We look at cricket history via the medium of a game that we call Nerd Play. 
pledge. Nerd pledge. It's a game that we play with people on that patron page. Here's how it works. They support the show. They fund this show. They are the, the bankrollers, the venture capitalists, the, the money behind the machine uh, because we make the show twice a week, sometimes more when there are daily shows on and we have to make that happen. And so they send us contributions, bless their hearts, not as a round number, not like an ordinary piece of currency, but a specific number because that number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the relationship is. For instance, Darren Smith is El Primero Cab off El Rank today, coming in with Great British Pounds, £2.12. There was no further note from Darren, which is absolutely fine. You don't have to give us clues. You can just give us a number. And I've given this number to Daniel, and Daniel is going to interpret 212, which could, the decimal point could be anywhere. It could be any way of interpreting 212 in sequence. Uh, But what have you done with it, Daniel, this week? Well, when you don't have a clue, it gives you free reign to go anywhere that your heart might desire. And Mm -hmm. um, the place my heart tends to desire is punting up the ISIS with Elsie in the 1920s, in the sweet afterglow of the First World War's end, the war to end all wars. I imagine myself with champagne and a hamper, and so inevitably my thoughts go to there. But it's gone in a slightly circuitous route, because, as is the way with story time, one has to examine the possibilities of 2-1-2. So, okay, the first and most obvious one is people who've scored 212 runs in an innings. Mm -hmm. Yep, straightforward. Straight to the point. It's cricket-related. You can't argue with it. There are 24 unbeaten 212s in the history of first-class cricket. Alan Kippax was the first. I love Alan Kippax, a lovely, silky, smooth Mm -hmm. player in the 1920s. He did it in 1924-5 in a match between New South Mm -hmm. Wales and Victoria at Sydney. The first person to score 212 in a first-class game is Arthur Shrewsbury, another of the truly great players. Um, 19th century, did it in 1892 at Lord's. I mean, these, mm-hmm. are, these are big names, big, big names and big numbers. Yep. There are 41 further 212s that are not out. The latest mm-hmm. one by Rohit Sharma for India against South Africa at uh, Ranchi. And some of the final words, favourite people, I've mm-hmm. got to mention on the final word many times, feature in the list of 212s. Ed Cowan is the one that really, like, springs to mind. Another New South Wales against Victoria match, this time at, at the G in 2016-17. Um, names that caught my eye, Graham Hick, Tom Moody, Kepler Vessels. Bradman, of course, did it twice. <laughs> like, he, like he did. Of course, of course. Any oh, just, number. Just collect, collect a couple. <laughs> Eddie, he's got a couple of them. Um, Graham Hick will come up later as well. I'm just going to flag that Ooh. for you, Daniel. I, oh, I, like I know it. you'll be excited by that. Well, I like a hickey day. But not in the way that you expect. He'll come up in an unexpected way. Oh, okay. Well, Bradman, of course, famously did it at Adelaide in the 36-7 tour when Quisling traitor Gubby Allen threw the series after being 2-0 up in order to make mm-hmm. amends for body line. So it could well, have been guess that. guess what? That series is going to come up later too. Oh, I hate that series more than I can tell you. We're uh, in sync. We're in beautiful, beautiful sync here. Les Ames, is he coming up? Don't know. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Les Ames, French for the love. <laughs> <laughs> well... He got a 212, as did my old geography teacher, John Dews, who used to play for Middlesex, mm-hmm. played against the Invincibles in 1948. But, you know, I mean, none of them really screamed to me. Uh, so then I looked mm-hmm. for bowlers who might have an average of 21.2. And as mm-hmm. I was looking at bowlers, you know, they've got to have 200 wickets plus. Yeah. And annoyingly, there's no quite 21.2. You've got Malcolm Marshall at 20.9-something. 
wasn't uh-huh. quite working for me. I thought, let's try test number 212. Which, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you'll like this game. Australia beating South Africa by an innings and 163 runs at Brisbane in 1931. Bradman again, what a surprise, 226. But what really catches your eye in that game is yours and my favourite fingerless left-arm spinner, Bert Ironmonger, who mm-hmm. was missing the forefinger in his left hand, even though he was a left-arm spin bowler. What a genius! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Famously, didn't debut till he was 45. And this, mm. was his, this was his sort of series marabolis, in which in the four matches he took 31 wickets at 9.67. Now, in this particular match, he took 9 for 86 across the two innings. In a further match in that series, 11 for 24 at the MCG. Utter destruction. Oof. Oof. Um, yeah. I, I just really have done that as a pretext to bring up Bert Ironmonger. Great name. Yeah. Unbelievable skills, extraordinary mm-hmm. numbers. Struggled a little bit against England. Only averaged like 26. It's not much of a yep. struggle. It's cunning by him as well because you have all these rules that if you're a spinner, you're not allowed to add things to your fingers, you know, apply tape and someone yeah. to help you bowl. But, but he says, well, what if I take one off? What if I <laughs> remove a finger? Well, that, they, they can't do anything about it then. They can't retroactively make me put it back on. Uh, How do you like them apples, eh? ICC. Yeah. <laughs> A point of difference, um, you might say, as a spinner. Well, I don't think it's a reference to him, but it gives us an opportunity Mm. to dwell briefly on his majesty. And then there are the two guys I sort of looked at, I wondered, because there are two, the shirt numbers of some interest, Keith Mm -hmm. Slater and George Street. Keith Slater for Australia, George Street for England, both won Test Mm -hmm. Wonders. Nothing remarkable happened in their games. I went in search, couldn't see anything too remarkable there. Mm. George Street, a, a player who got picked by accident when they wrote down the name off a map uh, <laughs> instead of... They, they meant Derek Avenue, did they? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I've decided instead that because 212 rings a massive bell in my brain, and I, all that perambulation mm. is before I've, I've told you that the first thing that sure. came to my head was the mighty Titch Freeman. Because Titch Freeman... In 1935, he took 212 first-class wickets. And it was the last of a sequence Mm -hmm. of eight seasons in which he took 200 wickets every season, 200-plus, starting with three... And not not by a long chalk his his most, because he took 300 in one season. 1928. So from 1928 to 1935, he took, get this, 2,090 wickets. (laughs) (laughs) In eight seasons, right? <laughs> ten wickets. He took ten wickets in an innings three times and twice took 17 wickets in a match. He only played for England about, what, 15 times. People say that mm. he struggled in test cricket. He took 66 wickets at an average in the mid-20s. Overall, mm. he's the second highest wicket taker of all time, as I'm sure our final word listeners know. But just a reminder... 3,776 wickets. He barely played cricket before the First World War. When the First World War was over, he was just about to to hit 30. So he took the vast majority of those wickets (laughs) over the age of 30. If ever you're looking at a young bowler and you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure if he's going to make it at 27, give him a few Mm. more years. You never know what might happen. (laughs) Five foot two inches tall. A truly astounding cricketer for Kent and and a bit for England. 17 times he took 100 wickets. 
in a season. Um, and bearing in mind that some of his best years, he never got the chance. I would like <laughs> 212. I would like it to be Titch Freeman because I like Titch Freeman and I love those numbers. Those numbers absolutely scream at me. Eric Titch Freeman, the tiny leg spinner who gave it a lot of air and picked up a lot of polls. Uh, Darren Smith, that is our suggestion for you for your 2-1-2. I hope you like it. If it's not right, you can send us a DM or get on the Discord. There's a Nerd Pledge channel on the Discord where you can throw in clues and have a bit of a chat with some other listeners about your number and see if you can work it out. A clue would be fun, Mm. I think, because I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that it isn't any of the things I mentioned there, unless it is Ed Cowan. It might be Ed Cowan. It could be Ed Cowan. But we, we couldn't rule it out. That was around the time that Ed Cowan, I think, won the Steve Waugh medal, New South Wales Player of the Year, topped the shield and, and still couldn't get a look in to find his way back into the test team. Our next number comes in from Jake Cunliffe in USD and it is $1.06, 106 Now, there's a clue attached to this, Geoffrey, uh, because you're going to be doing this. And the clue is as follows. The brother of a cricketer recently discussed on the final word became the third male player to reach this number while achieving a relatively rare test feat. Ooh, this is very English. specific. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is very, very specific. And I, I did communicate a little with Jake and he said, you're talking about a, a bowler with an unusual action. And... Eventually, after some circling around, I settled on the fact that I think we were talking about the Zimbabwe medium pacer Brian Strang. So I had to find brothers who'd played test cricket because presumably they both were test cricketers, although technically by the clue only the one in question had to be a test cricketer. But this is a a number reached while achieving a rare test feat. So Brian Strang did have a brother whose name was Paul who bowled leg spin. Uh, We've got a leg spin theme already in this episode, who played 24 tests for Zimbabwe. And the 10th of them came in 1996 in Sheikhapura, Pakistan. Uh, This is a match in which Zimbabwe batted first. They were 142 for six when Paul Strang came in at number eight. And Jake's other comment was this was a good match for number eights. He took Zimbabwe from 142 through to 375 all out. He made 106 not out. They were feeling pretty good. They were feeling pretty good. And then they reduced Pakistan to 183 for six. And this this is an innings we've spoken about oh, on the show before. Yes, of course. That's when that's Uh-oh. when Akram comes in at <laughs> number eight and makes 257 not out, <laughs> hitting 12 sixes in the innings. Now, Paul Strang, the leggy, had already taken five wickets in the innings. By the time he took his fifth wicket just after Wasim came in, when he got, who did he get it? He got Sally Malik out, I think, sports betting enthusiast. Sally Malik um, got out, uh, checked his betting apps and uh, headed back into the dressing room. So I don't know exactly what Paul Strang's figures were, but let's say out of 183 for six, he's a spinner, he's doing a fair bit of the bowling. Maybe he's got five for 80. You know, maybe it's better, maybe it's less than that, but, you know, he's got five for... Mm. Not a huge amount. He ends up with figures of five for 212. No! (laughs) Because presumably a lot of the sixes that Wasim Akram hit came off the spinner because he bowled for most of the innings. Uh, So Pakistan go on to a huge score. 
Zimbabwe almost lose the test, but they manage to hang on. They're seven wickets down and they hold on for the draw and who should be there at the death on 13 not out but Paul Strang. So this is a match in which he made 106. What is the rare test feat? Well, it's presumably making a century and taking five wickets in a match, which doesn't happen all that often. He's certainly not the third male player to do that. He was the 24th male player to do that. He remains the only Zimbabwe test cricketer to achieve the feat. And so I was trying to figure out what the thing is that he was the third to achieve. Was he the third to do that in Pakistan? No, he was the second to do it in Pakistan because only Imran Khan had a century and five wickets in a test in Pakistan and they remain the only two to have done it. So he's the only visiting player to do it. Imagine that at a trivia night. Who's the only player, the only visiting player to get 105 wickets in a test in Pakistan? How many would you have to go through before you got down to Paul Strang? I'd I'd go through uh, a a really quite sizable number, but I'm beginning to Mm. think that I think, I think I might know where this is leading because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about people who've conceded 200 runs. Well, that's where I went next. Who's conceded 200 runs in an innings? But no, he was the 14th man in Test cricket to concede 200 in an innings. Now, How many this, of them took a Fifer? Uh, that is a good point. I didn't look at that. Oh, sorry. Um, but that, that, that <laughs> may, no, that may be where, where we're going because I, this is, I, I struggled to quite work this out. Now, think of it this way. I was looking at the 200s, who's conceded 200. Yep. Here's an interesting bit. Strang's the 14th. So in the 120 years up until that point, it's happened 14 times that someone's gone for 200 in an innings. In 25 years since then, it's happened 21 times. Really? So there's been a proliferation of bowlers going for 200 in an innings. Yassir Shah alone has done it three times. Wow. Um, in about the last 10 years, which, which, which would hurt a bit. And then I had this moment of inspiration where I thought, hang on, Paul Strang across the innings bowled 69 overs. Nice. And I thought, maybe Jake is going with a running joke on the show and maybe he's the third man to bowl 69 overs in a test innings. But no, he was the fifth because Bishan Beatty did it, Delete Doshi did it, Torsif Ahmed did it, and who should be the fourth in that list of five to do it? Graham Hick. No. Graham in, Hick. In, in, in India. In India in about 19... 19- in New Zealand. New Zealand. He bowled 69 in overs in an innings. In Wellington, he bowled 69 (laughs) overs in an innings in Wellington. God knows how, but out of the five 69 overs in an innings, three of them came in New Zealand, home of the 69. That that is New Zealand's spiritual, you know, I suppose it's got two islands. Uh, They're sort of one on top of the other. Maybe one's facing one way and one's facing the other. It kind Um, of looks like they are, really. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've worked out a spiritual core for New Zealand at least. But that was as far as I got. But maybe if it's five for 200, but surely there must be, I'm, some, there must be more than three five for 200. But there can't, there, be many, who, there can't be many people who have scored 100 and conceded 200 and taken a five for. No, he's probably the probably only, the one, only one, one. He's probably the only one to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so he's the only one on a lot of lists. So I've got 95% of it, Jake, but I'm not sure what he was the it's third definitely player strang. to do. It's definitely Strang. Yep. I mean, you've basically it, got that there, um, Jeff. Mm, well done. Dr. Strang. Uh, so that, that is my answer for you, Jake 
Cunliffe. Our next up comes from Graham Jones. It is the devil's number 666, £6.66. And the clue is this for you, Daniel. Old dog whose bark was worse than his bite from the Shires. Played at my stunning home ground long before my time, that ground sits in the most northern part of its home county and is uniquely bordered by three other counties, Worcestershire, Warwickshire and Oxfordshire. The last list day game there was in 96, the first pro game I ever went to. The guy for my nerd pledge, I chose purely on his awesome name. He's a dusty old bastard who played alongside some legends. Now, I calculated from this that it must be Gloucestershire because you know that I never forget Gloucestershire I've never on this show forgotten that Gloucestershire exists and so I worked out geographically that must be the county but as for who the player is I wouldn't have a Scooby to do. Well no Uh, the thing was that as luck would have it the location came bursting into my mind because Gloucestershire yes Mm -hmm. but where in Gloucestershire because the clue was very specific it was the most northernmost part of of the county and it borders three others. Now, my parents emigrated to, um, well, actually, Oxfordshire. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. th- no, I, I, sorry, I tell a lie. <laughs> it was Warwickshire that they emigrated to, but it was right next okay. to Oxfordshire. And it was also right next to Gloucestershire. And their nearest major town, they moved to a place called Long Compton. And their nearest town of any kind of substance was Morton in Marsh because that was how I'd get there. I'd take the train mm-hmm. when I was younger to go and see them. Um, and, uh, well, you know, as, as little as possible, but when, when one did, one did. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, there's a, there was a cricket ground there. Uh-huh. And Gloucester used to play there a little bit in Morton in Marsh. Now, then I'm sort of intrigued. So I think I've, I've got the location and I've double-checked that, uh-huh. sure enough, the last List Day game was played there. John Player League game, was it, I think, in 1996. Uh-huh. So everything's now working for me. Uh-huh. I'm zeroing in. But yep. who is this guy? Because it's somebody that played at his club, which I'm now thinking is Morton and Marsh. The bark worse than his bite played sometime before our correspondent was there. And I'm thinking, I'm going to focus in on the name. He loved the name. So two names instantly uh-huh. came to mind for Gloucestershire. And I was thinking, like, in the 70s, he said a long time before, but, you know, that can be in the 70s, can't it? If his first game that he attended was uh-huh. in the 90s, that feels like a long time ago. And my favourite name in Gloucestershire cricket when I was growing up was a guy called Brian Brain. His surname was an anagram of his first name. And <laughs> <laughs> he was an absolutely classic English county pro would open the bowling, probably bowl. We didn't have speed guns in those days. I'm guessing like 74 miles an hour. Nibble <laughs> it about a bit. And his name was Brian Brain. Great name. He used to play for Worcestershire to begin with, and then he moved to Gloucestershire. So I looked at all his stats, and there was nothing that indicated 666. I thought, could he possibly have been hit for 6.66 in a match that caused Gloucestershire to lose? Maybe. Uh-huh. Did a bit of hunting. He didn't do that. So I thought, okay. okay, I can't find a link with Brian Brain. What's my second favourite Gloucestershire name? Well, I'm going to tell you briefly the story of Jim Fote. This isn't the answer, but I'm going to talk you through Because if you've have you ever heard of Jim Fote? <laughs> no, I have not. Jim Fote. Jim Fote came onto Test Match Sofa very briefly in about 20, 2011 because Jared Kimber and I were discussing the role or otherwise of the specialist fielder. I can't remember who it was that had a particularly poor series, but had fielded quite well. Might have been someone like Ian Bell, something like that. And we were thinking, 
Is it in the back in the seventies? They used to be, didn't they? We used to say, wasn't there that guy who played for Gloucestershire? Yes, there was Jim Fote. Now Jim Fote, <laughs> Jim Fote played for eight seasons. Right? His overall analyses are that mm-hmm. he played. Let me just let me just get this for you. He played ninety-one first-class matches, two thousand five hundred and twelve runs at an average of eighteen point six. He played as a specialist mm-hmm. batter. In that entire time, he only bowled nine overs, none for 40, right? So he was in that middle order. So I then hunted into my wisdoms to get more detail. And let me just give you a little flavour of Foti. In 1976, six matches, 53 runs at an average of five. 1977, 12 matches, 245 runs at an average of (laughs) 14.41, highest score 44. Then things improved for the Fotester. 78... (laughs) 18 matches, 686 runs, an average of 28.58. Lo and behold, there's an unbeaten century. 102 not out. The following year, slightly worse, but still pretty decent. Nine matches, 26.38, with a highest score of 126. And then they let him go. Then they let him go. (laughs) They didn't let him go when he was averaging five. They didn't let him go when he was averaging 14. But he was famous in this country for turning the Gillette Cup final of 1973 on its head with a spectacular piece of fielding, a direct hit that removed Tony Gregg of Sussex and led the Shire to victory. And he was kind of known, he was like a cult hero in the 70s. If the ball went anywhere near Fote in the covers, he'd just ping those stumps down. And he seemed to just get in the side for that and that alone. But as you can tell, I have trawled through all these stats and there was a very good chance that he'd have had a season's average of 6.66 at some point. (laughs) But it doesn't work. So I then go back and I think I've got to recalibrate. I've got to think about the name. I've got to think about the clue in the name. Bark, worse than his bite. Mm -hmm. Well, this took a while, but I am absolutely certain that I have got our man. And he is a man who was born in 1858. It wasn't wasn't an easy guy to track down. Mm -hmm. He played for Gloucestershire from 1878 to 1902. So he played with some legends there. He played with W.G. Grace, for instance. He played 160 first-class matches. He had a batting average of 6.53. Oh, I know. I think I'm so close here. And his name is William Albert Woof. Right? <laughs> so now I'm convinced I've got the right man. So all the oh, clues yeah. are so leading me this to name's William familiar. Albert Woof. He's, he's come up before, I, I think, William Woof. I remember the name coming up on the show at some point. William Woof. He couldn't bat. He could bowl. Took 754 first-class wickets, an average of 17.7. Uh, was born in Gloucester, but he played at Morton in Marsh. He was a left-arm bowler. And... Uh, Still can't find 6.66 until I explore his stats for Morton in Marsh. And you will not believe it. But his wickets for Morton in Marsh, I think 24 of them, came at an average of 6.66. Oof. So. Congratulations. I am absolutely 100% certain that I have got the man. I've tracked him down. William Woof. He was in and out of the side because he was coaching much of the time. It was a time when it was tough for professionals, weirdly, if you were going to make a living out of cricket, to play as much cricket as the Shamater. So W.G. Grace, he could play the whole bloody time. Whereas poor old William Woof was, he was coaching at Cheltenham College. Um, he was coaching the front and centre, actually. But uh, 
Uh, as a result, he was sort of in and out of the Gloucestershire side. He would have to go off and play some club cricket here and there. When he played for Morton in Marsh, the northernmost extremity of Gloucestershire, on the border with three counties, he took his wickets at an average of 6.66, and I'm sure his bark was indeed much worse than his bite. Oh, Daniel. Daniel Norcross. Degree of difficulty extreme to find somebody's stats for Morton in Marsh. Uh, however, no splash on entry. Uh, perfect tens across the board. Graham Jones, that is your answer. Surely, uh, let us know. Send us a confirmation. Sam Brown, you're next up. The number is $2.50 in Aussie dollars. And it comes with a lovely clue. It's a beautiful clue, this. I can't wait to hear your answer. The first international match I ever saw live, it's a one-day match, and my dad took me down from Tamworth for my birthday. To help narrow it down, I was born in 1989, and my favourite player as a kid had a notable milestone in that match. Well, Sam, you came down from Tamworth. Uh, for those who may be listening from the UK or other places around the world, Tamworth is in northern regional New South Wales. It's up near Bandara, Gunnedah, Bogabri, not a million miles from Coonabarabran, Gilgara, Galagambone. A lot of good place names out that way. It's the home of the, the country, Tamworth Country Music Festival. The, the big golden guitar lives there, um, the, the, the thing that, regional Australia has for big attractions, you know, big, the big merino, the big prawn, the big mango, uh, the big pineapple. <laughs> Adam and I have been to the big banana in Coffs Harbour. There's a big golden guitar in Tamworth that sits out the front of the Long Yard Hotel and it was inaugurated by Slim Dusty in 1988. So just before Sam came into this world, the golden guitar was launched and they've grown up together. They've been in this world for almost exactly the same amount of time. So the match he went to was probably in Sydney, I would assume. And uh, it just so happens that 250 was a score that Australia made batting first in a one-dayer in January 1998, which would fit in with our timeline. Mm. Ricky Ponting, 84, Darren Lehman, 52, and they roll over New Zealand for 119. So not much of a contest, but you were talking about Jack Fote. Jim Fote. Jim Fote. Jim Fote. Yep. Jim Fote. Throwing down stumps from the covers. Now, this match is notable for one thing, which really is Ricky Ponting's emergence to become the Jim Fote of the modern era, his preeminence as a fielder. So he, he, he gets two runouts in this match, and I, I watched them back while researching this. The first one's a, a classic Ponting swoop at cover where he picks up one-handed and throws round the body back at the striker's end. Uh, the opener was Craig Spearman, who I don't remember oh, yes. existing. I, I remember Spearman, yes. He was he was one of that, that huge slew of New Zealand openers like uh, Blair, Pocock mm -hmm. and similar who were there and then they were gone. <laughs> well, he was uh, a bit slow off the mark and there's this wonderful bit of Richie Benno commentary because um, Spearman, he's a bit lost. He's not sure, he forgets where the dressing room is and Richie says, he's not absolutely certain which way he wants to walk, but I'd suggest that it's off. <laughs> as, as they're looking at the replay that finds him about a yard short on the direct hit. The second one is crazy though. So this is um, Craig McMillan batting. He, he runs the ball away sort of, 
fine of Ponting's almost at short third. He's sort of he's at backward point that's so far around, and the ball's going fine of him, and they're setting off for a run because of course it's going to go past him, but it doesn't. He dives across, he grabs the ball while it's already behind him, and then instead of trying to come back to throw at the stumps, he does a full three sixty spin with the momentum of the ball while on his knees and throws almost completely blind. He's he's on the spin around as he throws back at the striker's stumps. And McMillan's tried to turn back because he's realised that Ponting's got the ball and they don't want to take him on. But Ponting rips like the outside edge of one stump with this ferocious throw um, and runs him out. It, it's extraordinary stuff, even, even watching it back now. So that's what I think... a, a a young lad might remember yeah. watching that game. What's what's the was it, there's a milestone in there? There just, is, uh, yeah, and it is funnily enough. Uh, so Shane Warne bowls later in in the match, picks up a couple of tail enders, two for nineteen from six overs. This is what's interesting. Uh, that was his choice to bowl then, because the milestone is that that was Shane Warne's first time captaining Australia, a job that he would do in one day as eleven times. But he didn't get more of a chance to do it in large part due to his proclivity for texting people things that he shouldn't. Uh, a theme oh, yeah. continues to run strong in Australian cricket. Well, it, 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 runs, it runs strong in English cricket too. It's, there's been, it there's been a fair bit of that. There's been a fair bit of that. Put your phones down, boys. Put your phones thumbs, down. Thumbs on ice. Um, yeah, well, they take the phones away during the games. Maybe they should take the phones away after the games as well. Yeah, well, um, I mean, before that's, and after. You, you will notice that um, some of the cricketers who've had the fewest scandals are the ones who have nothing to do with social media. I think can't actually operate phones. I've worked mm. with a few. <laughs> I mean, Vic Marks, for example, I think still has that like kind of old Nokia that just goes, you know, you have to like key in the number each time. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even yeah, have people's numbers. He has them written down in a diary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, different different people have different different ways of doing things. Yeah, slow, laborious um, ways. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just send him a telegram every time. Every time so, you ring Vic, you have to say hello, hmm. Vic. It's Daniel. Because oh, hello, because it doesn't come up on the phone. No one's name comes up on the phone. <laughs> Vic Marks and Chris Rogers uh, was one thing I noticed. Is it no no names, just all numbers, um, just numbers. Yeah. Now, Sam, you're new to the show. You signed up recently. The good news for you is uh, you have won the Brick Lane slab. You get to give someone a slab of Brick Lane. It could be you. You could give it to yourself. You could give it to somebody else. This will be sent your way. But if you didn't win a slab of Brick Lane, you can get a sweet discount at the moment. If you go to their website, you put in the code MARSH182, which is in honour of Sean Marsh's 182 in Hobart, and that gets you 15% off. They'll send you the beers, bricklanebrewing.com. They've got all the, all the kinds, dark beers, Belgian beers, red ales, lagers, mid-strengths, the works. But uh, because, Daniel, I, I hate to rub this in, but we're, we're coming into summer and it's quite warm and mild yes. here. This is the time when they want people to be enjoying one love pale ale bringing people together or if you don't want to drink you're not really into boozing they've got a very low alcohol beer called the sidewinder which is a hazy pale at one percent if you want to keep yourself on the straight and narrow yeah i mean i i, I will I'll, i'm just in for a penny in for a pound I'm, I'm just gonna demolish my way through as much of that as humanly possible because i am now in winter and there mm. are i mean it's different here for those in australia that, that don't quite understand our winter's are not spectacular and beautiful and snowbound. 
with um, you know lots of Austrian people skiing. They are grey and cold and damp without any colour. They're remorseless and the sun goes down. It's a bit like Queensland. The sun goes down at 3.50 in the afternoon. Oof. But it doesn't rise till about 8 o'clock. So, I mean, that's in London. If you're up in Edinburgh, mm. it's even worse. It's just, it's inhuman. But as I say, look, Operation Barbarossa is underway and we'll be able to turn a corner in about a month and a half's time. All the time, I'll be watching you guys in the, uh, well, I suppose rain-drenched mud mm. flats of the Ashes Tour. <laughs> it's, it's definitely pretty much underwater in Brisbane at the moment. That's the only th- interesting thing that happens in an England winter is every year when uh, New Road Cricket Ground at Worcester gets oh, up fun. under about three, three feet of water, um, which is sort of entertaining. Normally, in normally someone goes and has a little snorkel there. <laughs> That's what, a, a Mornay snorkel yeah, yeah. <laughs> and comes up with a discarded five pence piece you know <laughs> hey look what I found <laughs> so that is the tale for you Sam Brown G'day guys this is Jimmy Neesham you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman Peter Tattersall is up next, uh, I suppose, with that name. He should have been a lucky winner, but not to be on this occasion. $4.20 AUD, and uh, I think four twenty is not an accident because Peter says, hopefully a chance to spin a yarn on where two of my great passions are rolled together. And that does tend to indicate mm-hmm. a certain smoky flavour to this clue. It does, doesn't it? Um, it? It's very hard to look beyond the very clear and obvious drug reference here. So I didn't. I didn't bother looking beyond it. Um, <laughs> I, I had a kind of brief perambulation just for my own sake. Just wondered, oh, who's mm-hmm. England's 420th player? It was Jeff Jones, incidentally, who um, played in the 60s, took 44 wickets at an average of 40.2, which is close to 420. So there was, you know, there was something of interest there if you jumbled the numbers around. He also took thirty; he scored thirty-eight runs at an average of four point seven five. So it wasn't it wasn't too hot on that. But Jeff mm. Jones didn't strike me as a pothead from what I remember of him, and uh, <laughs> neither indeed does Trent Copeland, who is Australia's four hundred and twentieth Test mm-hmm. cricketer. So I discarded that. I d- I decided. I I thought, you know, could it be? Could it be a, a woman cricketer? And so I thought, is there a Mary I mean, Jane? It's possible. They they exist. No, know, they do. But I'm there. thinking. But I'm thinking. They've, well, I've seen them. Could it be a I'm, Mary? Could know. it be a Mary Jane? You know. Oh. So yeah, I went okay. in search of some Mary Janes. Certain, and certainly no cap numbers getting up to four twenty. No, there are no cap I numbers. Had that many yet? None of them. But I thought maybe there's a Mary Jane who mm-hmm. like averaged forty point two, something like that, or, or forty two point nine, I should say. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered, which was of only interest to me is that there's only ever been one Australian female test cricketer called Mary. Interestingly enough, uh, Mary Allett. Yeah, Mary Allett. There have been no other Marys that have played test cricket for Australia. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. It is kind of incredible. And she's quite incredible because she's a bit like Jim Fote. She averaged about 15 with the bat and didn't bowl. So, but she mm. did win. She won various medals for, for transforming cricket in Australia. So she was, I'm sure, a very important person in the pantheon of, of Australian mm. cricket. But it was another dead end. I do know Graham Fowler very well, as you know, mm-hmm. a former England opener and Lancashire opener. 
And uh, his birthday is the 20th of April, 420, which we're going to come to yeah. shortly. And he was on the sex... Also, it's also Hitler's birthday, isn't it? Just uh, yeah, the, I think, I think on, it is, yeah. But his, on the theme that we've had so far. He's got no first-class records that suggest 42 no. in any way, hey, or even 4 for 20. Hitler or Foxy? Hitler. But actually, Foxy does, because he's got a birthday mm. on the 20th of April, and he was on that notorious drug-fueled tour, the one that Vic Marks, who mentioned him again, oh, said yeah. that he knows he was on the tour because he's seen the scores. But... <laughs> <laughs> so you know that those were in the days when when people conducted cricket differently uh. i thought about i thought about other sort of stoned cricketers and, and discovered the great david murray of course great david murray who i think he was who was a son of everton weeks and mm-hmm. uh, he famously went on the rebel tour and had a really tough time of it um and uh, became a drug addict and he famously said about taking marijuana for cricket he said Always take it before and after, but never during the breaks. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Which I, I thought showed commendable restraint. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if you're wondering why we're talking about all this, it's because I've had an education in this. It's because 420, 420 is the 20th of the 4th. And hmm. um, 420, I've read a, an article by Siddharth Monga, says... Uh, refers to the consumption of cannabis and identifying with that culture. The story goes, a group of teenagers in San Rafael, California, used to meet after school at 4.20 to smoke marijuana at the Louis Pasteur statue. There was nothing particular about the time. It was just after the school ended. The term became part of the group's salute. 4.20 Louis! And the fans of the band Grateful Dead popularised it. It became so popular that (laughs) 4.20 celebrations would happen on April the 20th. Now... Where's the link with cricket? <laughs> and this is what's beautiful. Dion Nash, mm-hmm. the great New Zealander, who was caught smoking marijuana at a oh, barbecue in South Africa. We, we spoke about this. This was, this was on the show actually only a couple of weeks ago that uh-huh. this story came up where, where uh, the, I think as it ran, Dion Nash and Stephen Fleming were both asked whether they had done this and they both said yes at which point the New Zealand management stopped asking anyone else because they realised that they wouldn't have a team left. So they just suspended the two players they'd already asked. Yep, that was it. I think Matthew Hart might have, might have got in there as well. But yeah, but the, the, the two good ones, and they went, oh, mm. no. <laughs> so what is there in Dion Nash's record to, to suggest that? Well, there's nothing. There's nothing in his record, but he's become a bit of an entrepreneur of late. And uh, he sells bottled water. And he calls it 420. (laughs) Right? First, the water is packaged by 42 Below, a major vodka manufacturer. So you just add a naught and get the name. They use the same 420 water in their vodka. The second reason is what's the chemical formula for water? H2O, which when you Mm -hmm. write it out, looks like 420 because of the H. And it's apparently sold in 420 milliliter bottles. <laughs> so he's really, D- Dion Nash has nailed his colours to the mast there. He's not a part-time stoner. <laughs> he's, he's out and proud. So I'm pretty sure it's not Mary Allett, it's not Foxy Fowler, it's not David Murray, it's not Vic Marks, it's not Trent Copeland or Jeff Jones, but all roads lead. <laughs> To the mighty, the wonderful, <laughs> and uh, the very entertaining Dion Nash. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, as Fred Durst said, keep rolling, 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 rolling. Um, <laughs> Dion Nash, is, well, he's an ideas man. That uh, I'm sure that's how Adam Collins would describe him <laughs> on knowing where, where he's taken his uh, professional life after the game. You've, you've got to use what you've got. What do people remember you for? Use what you've got. Uh, that, Peter Tattersall, is our guest for your 420 pledge. And next up, someone who I know has been absolutely enthralled waiting for this number to come definitely the most active poster on the discord channel if there were a medal for post numbers guy hornsby would win it 268 great british pounds 268 that is the number and it comes with oh oh, a a tantalizing clue tantalizing clue ever since i saw that you were going to be doing this number i've been kind of looking forward to it anticipating it I need the answer. His clue is, My nerd pledge is a romantic one, referring to the staggering zenith of a county legend of my youth who never quite became the international star they should have, except one time. The team in question? I may live in Manchester now, but my team will always be in the south. So there's a fair bit to unpack there, Jeff. In the south, all right. So, 268. Initially, I was looking at first-class scores, which it can't be, um, because funnily enough, we have... uh, I'm sure someone will get mad about my definition of the South, but look, I'm not from England, so I can do things my own way. Mm. Um, We have Chris Dent from Gloucestershire and James Hildreth from Somerset, who have both made scores of 268 in first-class scores. That's the West Country. That's that's the West Country. You're dead right. That's the West Country. Yeah, but it's still South. It is South. It's down the bottom. It is South, yeah. If England were a, a jar, it would be at the bottom of the jar. That would, you know, that's where the good stuff would be. Yeah. But it can't be either of them because they're both still playing. And Guy said, a county legend of my youth, um, and Guy's youth is not now. Is that right? Uh, that's, well, look, I mean, you know, I mean, Guy's in the, in the, the middle range. He's not, he's not a, an elderly gentleman, but his youth is not current i wouldn't have thought and nor would his youth encompass teddy winyard making 268 for hampshire in 1896 i don't think oh. so i think i think that guy's youth falls somewhere between 1896 and today um <laughs> i think i've just got it i'm not going to say it i think i've just got yeah. it it's been staring me in the uh, face uh, yeah right so this is the realization i came to we're not talking about first class cricket we're talking about 50 over cricket uh, if I can count Surrey as being a team in the south, which I think is fair enough. I There's think you can. South, south London, at least. Ali Brown's 268 against Glamorgan in 2002. Now, we have talked about this innings before, but it is worth recapping. Uh, it's still the highest list A score ever made. It came off 160 balls with 12 sixes and 30 fours, which I kind of like that it wasn't all sixes. You just you just hit fours basically every second ball through the course of this entire innings. Ian Ward, who does commentary on Sky now, was batting with him for 97 at a runner ball, playing the anchor role. Hilariously, the other scores on the scorecard are 26, 5, 4, 2 and 6. So <laughs> everything happened up the top. He got out just before the end, maybe an over or two before the end, Ali Brown, or he you know, didn't didn't go on with it. So they made 438 for five, in which context uh, Michael Kasprovich's one for 53 off 10 overs looks like a triumph. That's absolutely It's a very short boundary. Yeah. I remember the game. Um, it was yeah. a really short boundary on the cricketers' 
pub side at the Oval, so the opposite side from the Hollyford mm-hmm. Road side, which doesn't detract from the incredible innings, but it meant that he was, target- he was targeting that boundary over and over again. <laughs> well, he targeted it successfully. So 438 is, um, you know, a, a, a number that's come up in 50-over cricket uh, more prominently since then when South Africa made it. But they've got to try to chase this, Glamorgan. And so who's opening the batting? And this is weird, but Robert Croft mm-hmm. is opening the batting. Now, this is the player who we talked about batting for 310 minutes, was it, to secure a draw in a test match, ending up on about 47 not out or something like that, and not trying to get his 50 in the last over when the match was already saved. Um, oh, I know. He wanted, red, stuff. he wanted the red inker. That's what he was, that's mm. what he was there for. Yep. But he opened the batting and made 119 from 69 balls, Robert Croft. <laughs> Known as a spinner, but just absolutely went to town. David Hemp, um, in, in line with our 420 theme, made 102 from 88. And they were all out with one ball to spare for 429. So they lost by 10 runs <laughs> in that game, meaning that when the wicket fell from the second last ball, had someone not got out then, a four and a six would still have won them the game. Yep. They could have actually won that match. With two balls to go, that match was still live. So one of the more ridiculous days of 50-over cricket you'll ever see. I suppose they targeted the short boundary too. Yeah, they would have done. And uh, I, I spoke to Robert Croft about that game because he came onto a program we did called the Cricket Social during a test series. And um, there's a fascinating detail in there because I, I was just having to be saying to him offhand, why is it that Glamorgan always beats Surrey? in white ball cricket. You know, it's a general rule. Surrey have had stronger mm. teams during the T20 era. And yet, Glamorgan seemed to beat them every time they come to the Oval. And he said, well, you see, Daniel, we've not got over, we've not got over the incident. I said, what incident? <laughs> and it was in the 4-3-8 game. And the last ball of Surrey's innings, if you've got the scorecard there, I think... I don't. I think it was Alex Stewart shouldered arms to the last ball. And this was seen as very disrespectful, as if, you know, what, you think you've got enough runs because you've got 438? <laughs> and uh, Surrey were, were apt to do things a little bit like that, go, no, nah, we don't need any more. <laughs> I'll just take the red ink myself, right? And this riled the Welsh so much. I think that might have been partly why Croft put himself up to open, because he was furious mm-hmm. about it. He's still furious about it in 2021. <laughs> All of Glamorgan is still furious about it. <laughs> and as a result, whenever they turn up at the Oval, Surrey have no idea why, but they're always up against some hyper-motivated players <laughs> who are holding an animus that goes back over two decades, especially because they, at the Oval, when they arrive, Glamorgan, you know, if they want to have a drink and go into the pavilion, they'll have a drink in the Ali Brown 268 bar which I don't think uh. is helping. I, don't think, I, think, I think when Glamorgan come to town, they should rename it. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is um, the, 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 the bit that Guy mentions about him uh, not becoming an international star. He'd, he'd already had his crack at being an England one-day player before this innings. He played in was it 1996 when, when Ellie Brown... Uh, it was against India, his, wasn't it? Didn't his he? ODI career. Yeah, he, he never nailed down a spot and they didn't get him back, but he had this one day in 1996 when he smashed 118 
against uh, Javagal Srinath, Venkatesh Prasad, Anil Kumble and, and Adam's favourite, Venkatapati Raju. A pretty handy bowling attack to batter 100 against and that was his one day that Guy mentioned, which in, you know, in which he, he got to live his dream and be his best self. That's the 268 for Ellie Brown. Yep, yep. I think that's definitely it. I can't believe I didn't just instantly see it, but the moment I mm. reread it, it all came flooding back. Of course, he did win the county championship a few times under the captaincy of Adam Hollyoke. Who, who went on to become a cage fighter. Uh, do you think we could get Robert Croft and Alex Stewart in a cage just to settle this once and for all? Could they put it to bed? Well, I think it'd be an interesting fight, wouldn't it? Because I think Robert Croft would adopt the kind of pit bull approach while Alex mm-hmm. Stewart stood there like Queensbury rules with the fists up in the mm. old sort of 1870s pose. Come at me! Come at me, gentlemen! Come, let us brawl, let us rumble! It'll be like that. <laughs> it was a perfectly starched, upturned collar. <laughs> he's melty eyed croft f- going mad at him. It, he's, he's a frighteningly fit man, Alex Stewart. I, I feel vaguely intimidated any time I've been in the same room as him. You know, he looks like he knows how to kill you three times before you hit the ground. Oh, he it's definitely just, does. Uh, the incredible thing about him is that he has a brother who they say, mm. I think it's, is he called Nick, who they say was, was more talented. But mm. he has devoted his life to Epicureanism. He's a fine coach mm. at Surrey, but he's of a different build, let us say. Okay. Well, we each uh, choose our different paths and must find our things to relish and enjoy in them. Uh, we are coming to our last number. It is a double header. So it comes from Ed in Pounds and it comes from Jamo in AUD, or JMO, I suppose. Last name James, therefore JMO. JMO, JMO, you know, you say potato. The number is 418, 4.18 in the respective currencies. Ed has sent through a clue for Daniel, uh, which says, I had to round up. So that indicates that it's 4.17 something. And the second clue is Sisyphus. And perhaps you can explain for those who don't know who Sisyphus is? Well, poor old Sisyphus. He's, he's like a lot of these ancient, very, very ancient mythological Greeks. Um, his life is doomed to a perpetual and horrible misery. So he kind of is he's rolling this huge boulder up a mountain. And just as it's about to get to the top, it rolls back down to the bottom again. And he has to mm-hmm. do it over and over and over again. It's, it's essentially an analogy for being English. Toil. For toil. <laughs> Yeah, you know, for, you, you roll the for ball. For getting through an, an English winter. You got you know, it. You, you do it and then you've got to do it again got to the do next it year and do it again. All over again, yeah. Operation Barbarossa comes around every year. There's the the reimagining of it from Albert Camus' essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, which I, it, it, it ends with the conclusion that, uh, I'll paraphrase that, may not have the exact quote but he says the the struggle towards the summit is in itself enough to fill a man's heart i must imagine sisyphus happy oh yeah i mean i obviously can't imagine sisyphus happy uh, mm. I, I, yes, I, I identify but he with keeps, Sisyphus. But he keeps rolling the boulder. He, does he rolls it up and it, and it rolls back down, but he still rolls it up again. Yeah, but duty, yeah. I mean, you can discharge yeah. duty, can't you, with a heavy heart. 
doesn't have to make I you happy. You can. But yeah, I mean, it's a nice idea, a happy scissor. I mean, whistling with a bit of straw in his mouth all the time. Hmm. What, are you, what are you doing, scissors? <laughs> oh, I'm rolling the ball, I am. I'm just rolling this great big boulder up. And you know, just when I get near the top, it always seems to come down the bottom again. But that's no bother for me. I rather like it out here. Come rain, wind, shine, sleet or snow. Um, do you ever get a chance to go to the pub meeting? He makes, no, no, no. Got to keep rolling the boulder, haven't I? Uh, so... <laughs> Well, it's not going to roll itself now, is it? No. I don't know why I adopted a West Country accent for that. It's probably no. the effect. I was wondering play. why Vic Marks was <laughs> rolling the rolling the boulder up and down the route. And, uh, well, Vic Marks I'm rolling episode. the boulder up, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know who's calling me. But <laughs> but you see, you see, as a clue, it's a very it's mm. a very important part of the clue. And yet, mm-hmm. how was I to make it work? And so. I've, look, I've, I've come at this from a number of different angles. My first angle was to find every test player who's got a bowling average of 41.75 to 41.79. Because if you recall, yeah. he said the rounding up process, okay? Yeah. There's a rounding up process. Because if you're going to round up, you'd round up. And because Sisyphus had a bouldering average. So. Bouldering's oh, very good. <laughs> very good. So I thought I'll start with a bowling average. And the only man... In test cricket history with an average of 41.75 to 41.79 is Brendan Bracewell, who started his career sensationally in England in 1978. Got a couple of wickets in his first spell. Uh-huh. He was kind of thin and uh, slightly freckly. And uncle, I don't, Is he the unc- uncle of Doug Bracewell? Eh? Something like that. I think so. There's, a, there's definitely some kind of link. And then I thought, is it that, you know, trying to keep his average below 40 and then you know in his last game it went mm. over 40 could it be that doesn't I, I couldn't make that work so then i tried uh, batters with the same averages and the only man to have an average between 41.75 41.79 is one of my favorite players of all time the great charlie mccartney the australian who, who was the opposite of a, a Sisyphus? He didn't have to grind relentlessly and repeat things over and over again. He he had a ball. He did what he wanted. He made three hundred in a day. Uh, he he had a great time. I mean, Charlie McCartney lived his best life on the cricket field. Well, he did. He did all that, and he did score a hundred before lunch. And it's one of very very few people to do that. But what six. He, what he did do was he did bat up and down the order. Right. So. Mm-hmm. He batted everywhere from he batted two, three, five, seven, six, eight, ten. Uh, I've given you all the others. One. He's done one. He didn't bat at number nine. <laughs> so or eleven. And, and and at the end of his career, he only batted at number three towards the back end for about the last ten or fifteen matches he played. So as he was trying to get to the top of the order, it was always coming back down the order and then up and then down. So I thought, is it Charlie McCartney? Um, which, which, look, it, it semi-works, mm-hmm. but I didn't think it was quite right. So then I looked at another way of looking at it because uh, rounding up in a cross, crossword mm. clue means can mean something slightly different. So if you take Greg Chappell's ODI average of 40.18, right, in a crossword mm. clue, what you'd do is you'd take out the zero and it would become 41.8. So round up. It's like take mm. something out, right? Now, what would that have to do with Sisyphus? Trevor Chapel getting his brother to roll 
the ball along the ground. Oh, rolling around object. Rolling around object to reach a summit. I thought that might actually work. And there's one other that might work if we assume that our correspondent either has got it wrong or he's got different stats from me, which is, and this is another elegant one because this involves another pair of Australian brothers, Mark Waugh and Steve Waugh. Steve Waugh debuted first, but Mark Waugh was the, the more productive batter initially. And when Steve came, uh, when Mark came into the team, he, I think, started, obviously, a few runs behind Steve, and he'd get really close to him, and then Steve would score 100, and he'd be mm. further away again. And on and on this went, this dance of death, with him never quite getting above Steve Waugh's total number of runs. In the end, Steve Waugh played for another two or three years after Mark retired, got clear blue water, got a couple of thousand runs ahead of him. So that could be Sisyphus. And Mark mm. Waugh's average in Test cricket when he finished was 41.81, which is 4.18 in a way. The rounding mm. up doesn't quite work, but there may be a rogue game. A rogue game in the stats, maybe. Maybe he was averaging 41.79 other than this one other game that, is, that, that our man's not taken into, mm. into consideration. It seems probably unlikely, but it's quite elegant because it does also sort of work. May, if, it, if it were rounding down, maybe, if, it, maybe if up means down, maybe if we turn things upside down. Well, Ed, I think you would have to say we've had a decent crack at it if we haven't got it. Give us a, a strong clue to move us closer to it and we'll, we'll try to finish it off on a revisit section in the weeks to come. Our last one, our other half of the doubleheader, JMO with 418. Real name, Greg James, a very auspicious name in, in this part of the world, I tell you. Uh, so I was mightily impressed to get a mention on Storytime 54 and a gig on Rumble Pants Murally between White and Tendulka. His, his mural, mural I think. sorry, it's mu- not mu- his mural. Mu- mural. <laughs> Rumble pants, murally. Rumble pants, mural. <laughs> this is the, uh, the, the the painting with many prominent people from from cricket. So Greg James of the BBC has got a spot in there. He says, in honour of this occasion, I am upping my nerd pledge to four dollars eighteen. This is in relation to a rare beast. One of my grandfather's heroes who played test cricket and AFL footy at the highest, in inverted commas, level. I am a swan's tragic, if that helps, as was grandpa. This chap also comes in at number four on one of your quirky lists, Jeff. Have I said too much? Has he said too much, Jeff? Has he said too much? He's not, he's not said too much because the point of this is to solve the clues uh, rather than leaving us stumped for weeks on end. And this... This is a number. This is a story. This is about the one and only Laurie Nash. Now, I should uh, correct there. It's it's not AFL footy that he played because it didn't exist at the time. It was VFL. um, But nonetheless, he he did play top flight football. Laurie Nash, a good Melbourne lad, born in Fitzroy in 1910. When I imagine that probably the men in Fitzroy in 1910 had moustaches and maybe clothes and things fairly similar to the ones they have now. It seems to have to have gone that way in recent years. Um, Laurie Nash played for Fitzroy in first grade cricket when he was 17 and he was short but he was a very quick bowler and a very fierce bowler and he loved to just come in and 
bang the ball down as fast as he possibly could. So he was pretty close to repping Victoria, but his dad was a policeman who joined the coppers' strike and they all got laid off. And so they had to go and find other jobs. And so his dad had to move to Tasmania and took the family with him. So Laurie Nash was playing first-class cricket for Tasmania very soon after getting there, furiously quick. And by all reports, he sounds like a firebrand in just about every way. Very stubborn, very blunt, said what he thought, got people offside. I liked the the note in his biography that uh, he was a Catholic, but he married Irene, who was a Protestant, and they got married in her church. And for pretty much the rest of his life, the Catholic Church were badgering him to have a Catholic ceremony because otherwise they said his marriage didn't count. Oh. And he said, bugger off, I don't care. I'm Laurie Nash and I don't give a shit. I love my wife, I'll do what I want. I like the sound of um, Laurie Nash. He's, he's, he sounds yeah, all right. Yeah. He does sound all right. And so, but he, was, he had a temper. And so at one point he got called for deliberate throwing in a match because he was annoyed at something that was going on in the game and started pinging the ball down with a, a bent elbow. Um, and so that... That was a mark against his name. But then he played the touring South Africans for Tasmania. And this, will, more than anything, will give you a, a sense of Laurie Nash's character. He's on a hat-trick, right? He clean bowls two batsmen in a row. One, two. When he comes in to bowl the hat-trick ball, he just bowls a bouncer <laughs> and breaks, breaks the jaw of a South African batsman named Eric Dalton. Doesn't bother trying to get the hat trick, just just bumps the shit out of him instead. And around this time, he nearly went on Arthur Maley's tour to North America that we talked about, um, where where Bradman turned it into his honeymoon trip. And he got picked to play against South Africa for a test match on, on the basis of roughing them up in this tour game. And they absolutely rout the South Africans. They bowled them out for about 50 in both innings and he took four for 18 in that first innings, which is Jamo's number. Mm -hmm. So the next year he's being talked about for body line, but he doesn't get picked because there are selectors that don't like him. He's annoyed too many people. He's put people offside and so he, he doesn't get into the oh, body no. line he'd have, been, he'd have been perfect for fighting fire with fire. Crazy. Absolutely. And and he had a good opinion of himself. And his his quote was that if they picked me for body line, it would have been over in the space of 12 balls. <laughs> so he said, so I was just giving it back to them and they would have stopped using the tactic, basically. So he felt pretty confident. He felt pretty aggrieved at being left out. And so in 1933, he and his brother both signed for South Melbourne Victorian uh, Football League Club to play Australian rules. He's a gun footballer. He's 22 when he starts, so he's mature already physically. He plays centre-half back, but he'd maraud down the ground. He'd set up play from centre-half back in a kind of quarterback style. And the bizarre thing is that he's five foot nine. If you're centre-half back, you're usually a very big player, but he's, he's five nine and he's doing it anyway. The next year, he gets picked for a state football match against South Australia. They threw him into the forward line where he didn't normally play, and he kicked 18 goals for the match, <laughs> playing at full forward. Ooh. Um, to give you some context... That's, that's, that's good, isn't it? That feels like a lot. A, so most teams don't kick 18 goals in their, in their entirety in a match. You know, the most, a footy match will usually be, you know, 10 to 15 goals, somewhere like that. He kicked 18 on his own. And after the game, he said, I would have kicked a lot more, except no one was passing to me. <laughs> oh, Wow. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, so he played centre-half back, centre-half forward, full forward and played in the ruck and did all of this at five foot nine um, when most players doing those things would be about six foot six. He was captaining the Swans by 1937 and in the summers he's dominating district cricket but the Victorians still wouldn't pick him for the state team, right, until he finally gets picked in a tour match against England in that 36-37 Oh, 36-37, my least favourite series. There we are. Uh, so, and he beats them up. He's fast. They don't like it. He goes at them. And Bradman says, I want this guy in the fifth test. The, the Ashes at that point is two all. Mm-hmm. Bradman's engineered the crazy comeback in Melbourne. They've won the fourth test after that. They're going to come back from 2-0 down and win if they can win this final test match. And Bradman wants Laurie Nash. And the Victorian selectors don't want it. The Australian uh, selectors do want it. But Gubby Allen, your least favourite. Quisling, Quisling traitor, Gubby Allen. Yep. yep. Tries to get Laurie Nash barred from playing the game. He goes, he goes in politicking behind the scenes, talking to the Australian board and talking to the MCC and saying, you can't pick Laurie Nash or we'll, you know, we don't want him to play. On what, on what, on what, like on what specious grounds on this occasion, be, this moustache-twirling wanker? Yeah, he's a bad person. He's too aggressive. He bowls too many bounces, something like that. Oh, um, and the Australian selectors say that if they don't allow Laurie Nash to play, they'll quit. The Australian selectors will resign en masse if Bradman doesn't get his way and Laurie Nash doesn't play so he gets picked he takes four for 70 bowling quick uh, to bowl out England well short of the follow-on they lose the game by a massive margin they set up the series win and in true Laurie Nash style his quote after the series is with the score at two all they knew where to come (laughs) 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 oh and what what makes me like Laurie Nash even more is that after this test success, he gets finally gets offered the chance to play a Sheffield Shield match. He's never played a Shield match for Victoria. And he knocks it down, back because Irene is sick and he says, no, I've got to look after my wife. So he doesn't go, to, I think, to Adelaide to play that match. And that was it. He never got offered another spot for Victoria. He stayed on the outside. He took 10 for 35 in a district match um, not long after that but didn't get picked by the Vicks and, and never played top-line cricket again. Bradman wanted him to go to England in 1938, but by then he was overruled. Uh, Keith Miller called it the greatest waste of talent in the country's history. And Laurie Nash went on to fight in New Guinea during World War Two, and in Laurie Nash style refused a bunch of offers of preferential treatment, refused to be posted to a comfortable posting at home, insisted on going overseas to fight, refused promotions when they offered him because he said, you're only offering it to me because I'm Laurie Nash, um, refused to accept the campaign medals afterwards, um, said that you know he, was, he just wanted to be there and, and do his bit. And he came back in 1945 and played one more season of top-line footy with South Melbourne. He led the goal kicking. They made the grand final in which he knocked out one opponent <laughs> and left the game in his own style. Um, although they didn't win the premiership, he did it his own way. Laurie Nash, whose career best figures were four for 18, who took 10 wickets in two tests at 12.6 and never got asked to play again. Oh. And who, as Ed alluded to, is fourth on the list of the best bowling averages for bowlers to have taken 10 wickets or more. That is... The story of it's, Laurie Nash. Do you know, it's scandalous, isn't it, thinking about that? Because actually Australia's fast bowling resources weren't weren't that tip-top. 
between mm-hmm. sort of 32 and 38. They're okay. But you've got this, you've got this monster in the wings and you're not using mm-hmm. him. I mean, it's... Yeah, he was too, yeah. too monstrous for them. Mind they, you, couldn't, he's, they couldn't handle him. We say we like him. I think I like him more as an historical figure than possibly yes. as a dinner party guest. That's my yeah. feeling. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I, I wouldn't like to be playing against him. Um, and, and probably if he were doing the things he did now, we wouldn't think they were great. But bad things become funnier the longer ago they are. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the truth of both history and comedy. I mean, look, um, Vlad the Impaler's story is one of the most hilarious mm. of the lot, isn't it? But you're, you're right. I think if, if someone was sticking a pike up your ass, it was probably felt less than amusing. Yeah, probably not at the time. I mean, having the name Vlad the Impaler is funny until yeah. you actually have to deal with someone who is Vlad the Impaler. So, you know, distance uh, makes the heart grow fonder. Or, uh, and and we, we can find things more amusing in retrospect to a degree. We've reached the end, Daniel. Oh, that was so story soon. time. So soon. But I, I feel like we had a good time. I hope you had a good time listening in. Well, I had a great time, Jeff. It was lovely seeing you, and it's it's lovely to see the, the sun setting now at uh, at two thirty five. It's already starting to get quite bleakly dark away to my right. Um, you presumably being in Queensland, doesn't the sun rise stupidly for the cows? Yeah, it's it's one thirty a.m. here, which means that the sun will be up in about two hours. Um, yeah, just to make sure the cows don't get confused. But you know, uh, what can you do? We're we're a country with about seven different time zones. Uh, I particularly like that Adelaide goes from being half an hour behind Queensland to half an hour ahead just for half of the year. Even, um, though, even though it's west. It was a thing yeah. that confused the hell out of me when I came four years ago. It was a very, mm-hmm. very confusing thing. But, um, yeah, but also one of the things I like because it means that in Adelaide you get mm. to go and drink in... Um, I, I know you probably shouldn't do this because... But it's not the BBC. There's a really terrific Shabeen in Adelaide called Maybe Maze, which I hope is still there, which sells a drink called the penicillin. And it would mm-hmm. still be light at about half, seven, quarter to eight as you walked into its subterranean kind of... What do you call it? It's almost, it's almost like being in a kind of huge sarcophagus, really. And, uh, and I remember getting really quite merry and dancing on a table... Mm to a drink called the penicillin in Adelaide. I miss it. Whereas in Brisbane, the light comes in, doesn't it, before even the scheduled close of play for some bizarre reason. Then the bats go whizzing around and um, it's time for bed. Line up a a couple of penicillins for Wally Hammond, if you please. (laughs) Uh, Not... Not not Len Hutton. Len Hutton's fine. Don't worry about Len Hutton. Oh, Everything, no. His, 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 his todger was perpetually clean and, yep. um, and yeah. sparkly. <laughs> they always said that about him. Yeah. Um, right. This has been the final word story time. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you want to be part of the fun, go to patreon.com slash the final word. You can send a nerd pledge in, get on the show. You can help us keep making the show and you end up with about a one in four or one in five chance of winning the beers as well. Discount tickets to the live shows. Lots of fun happening in the Discord. Plenty of reasons to join up. Thanks to Brick Lane for supporting the show. The show is edited by Dave Collins. It's part of the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Lots of other programs on their network as well and uh, thanks particularly to Daniel Norcross for playing the role of Adam Collins with distinction this week this has been TFWST see you next time goodbye
Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.